Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Tonight on The Readout. And I, quite frankly, am going to tell you that I think it was one of the most pathetic Christmas greetings I've heard when a former president of the United States who wants to return tells people on Christmas Day that they can rot in hell. Just as Congresswoman Debbie Dingell says, Trump's rotten hell Christmas message was, to say the least, unpresidential. Now, special counsel Jack Smith is filing a new motion to block Trump from making political arguments during his criminal trial. Also tonight, Michigan's Supreme Court decides against removing Trump from the 2024 ballot, unlike Colorado's highest court, and now extra security is needed for those justices. Plus, the Republicans' all-out assault on voting rights which includes plans to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to preserve their undemocratically gerrymandered maps in Wisconsin. Good evening. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. in for Joy Reid, and we have got a lot to talk about. We begin tonight with a new year fast approaching, with many looking ahead to 2024 and wondering what else could be in store. That certainly appears to be the case for former President Donald Trump, who has spent the holidays not spreading peace, love and joy, but rather lashing out in a flood of social media posts focused on his perilous legal year ahead. And perhaps he's understanding that he might not be able to escape the consequences for his alleged criminal activities. And while lashing out on social media is not something new for Trump, this holiday temper tantrum involved a Christmas Day greeting for his perceived enemies that included, quote, may they rot in hell. What a Grinch. This was also a special shout out that was directed towards special counsel Jack Smith, noting that Smith should, quote unquote, go to hell because nothing says I'm getting into the holiday spirit like wishing eternal damnation on others. I mean, I've gotten a lot of Christmas messages myself over the holiday years, but nothing that extended into the afterlife. Still, there's good reason for Trump to be feeling the pressure and acting out like a petulant child, because while he has been focused on defending himself in the public arena and trying to make this all about politics, Smith and his team have been doing the diligent legwork to focus on the facts, the evidence and the law. In some depositions, they've gone deep. And I've talked to people who've participated in this investigation as lawyers, sometimes even as witnesses. And it's evident to me, based on my conversations with sources, that Jack Smith has a sprawling case Mm -hmm. against former President Donald Trump. Now, it's important for us to remember that for as much as we know about the evidence that Smith has presented publicly, there's likely a mountain of additional evidence that has not yet been shared. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that as these trials develop, the situation for Donald Trump could get a whole lot worse. Trump is going to do what he's always done, and he's going to claim it's all a setup by the president, by the Democrats, by the left, by the boogeyman, by the deep state, and anyone else who disagrees with him. Take a listen. And since Biden 
got in. He has been weaponizing government against his political opponents like a raging third world tyrant. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means possible. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the post. Now, we, we've heard all of that and the finger pointing and everything else, but it's really important to remember that by and large, the evidence that we already know that has not come out, it, it's not been from the Democrats or from the deep state or from President Biden. It's been from fellow Republicans and those who were in the room, those who were in Trump's administration, some of which include, for example, his own former vice president. And while Trump's federal election interference case has been put on hold as a federal appeals court hears Trump's presidential immunity defense, none of that has stopped Jack Smith from continuing to prepare for trial. Just this morning, Smith filed a motion to block Trump from making political arguments and referring to conspiracy theories during a trial, saying in part, quote, the court should not permit the defendant to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding, end quote. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Justice Matter podcast, as well as David Jolly, former Republican congresswoman, congressman, my apologies, who is no longer affiliated with the party, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and an MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you all for being here. I just want to get started. Uh, David, we've talked a number of times. Your reaction to these go-to-hell Christmas messages from Donald Trump, are, are, are we seeing someone who's just normally unhinged, or is this more about him feeling the pressure of what's coming and people maybe telling him the truth about what he can expect ahead? Yeah, Charles, good to be with you. My takeaway is the old man's afraid of prison because when he gets his back against the wall, we see him lash out. But much like he did on Thanksgiving, he name checks prosecutors who in some ways are holding his freedom and jeopardy in balance here as they're presenting their case in front of judges. Thanksgiving, he went after Letitia James that uh, has Donald Trump's fortunes, personal fortunes on the line. He's going after Jack Smith now. I think we're seeing Donald Trump with his back against the wall. And where there is danger in that, sure, we can talk about the fact that on Christmas he he writes, go to hell. He also said on Christmas that he would replace Obamacare. So maybe, you know, he truly has lost it. But I think where it, it does give us cause for danger and concern is he is currently neck and neck with Joe Biden. Some polls have him ahead. This is an indicator when he says that he is running for retribution, that he will do what he says he's going to do. What would he do today if he was in office with the power to use the Department of Justice for his own means? I think we know where his frame of mind is. We know where his intent is. If he achieves power again, that's a dangerous mixture. Barbara, let's talk lawyer to lawyer here. Uh, what are you gleaning from what Jack Smith is basically saying in this latest filing about the evidence he has? We know we're in discovery now. I want to read a quote from the filing and let, let me know what you think about it. The government anticipates calling witnesses with knowledge of information protected by certain privileges including the attorney-client privilege and the speech or debate privilege. I don't know about you, but that last part, the speech and debate part, lets me know that there are particular witnesses that are going to show up on that list 
that this applies to and that should worry Donald Trump. What do you read into that? Yes, yeah, same thing, Charles. You know, the speech or debate clause applies only to one class of people, and that is members of Congress and their staffs. And so to say that we want to preclude any argument that might confuse the jury involving the speech or debate clause says to me that Jack Smith is planning to call as witnesses either one or more members of Congress or staffers. Uh, that is very interesting testimony because we haven't really thought about before. We didn't see any of this before the January 6th committee. It may even be that somebody's cooperating, though not necessarily. He could put someone on a witness list, even though they are not uh, cooperative or part of a plea deal. But I do think it's very interesting because it does suggest that there's at least one member of Congress on Jack Smith's witness list. And it's important to remember that even as that might be the case, just because you appear on a witness list does not mean that the government has to call you. It means that they can. They're preserving their right. But nonetheless, this is pretty explosive language that we're seeing as part of this filing. Glenn, talk to me about the balance between what it is, for example, with Jack Smith's request that, look, we don't want this to be littered with different political speech when you're talking about, at its core, an offense and a fact pattern that inherently involves different degrees of politics. How is the court going to strike the appropriate balance in not necessarily making this a circus, as Jack Smith is trying to prevent, but also not potentially infringing upon whatever rights Donald Trump has, as anyone else would, as a criminal defendant? Yeah, Charles, it's a great question. This is an unusual trial, an unusual set of facts and circumstances. Now, motions in limine, just a fancy way to say, we're trying to limit the other side as to what they can and what they can't present by way of evidence what they can and what they can't argue to the jury. Motions in limine like this are pretty routine. Um, ordinarily, the parties kind of know what they can and can't argue, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. That typically goes for prosecutors and defense attorneys. But it's pretty clear Jack Smith wants the defense team to be on notice of a whole laundry list of categories that he believes are out of bounds. And he wants Judge Chutkin to rule that they're out of bounds. You know, you can't ask a jury to decide issues or to decide guilt or innocence based on passion, based on prejudice, based on politics. I'll give you a simple example. Somebody can't put up a defense that says, well, I may have committed the crimes, but if I'm convicted and sent to prison, my children will become orphans. You know, that will play on the sympathies of the jurors, but it is absolutely an inappropriate argument to make. Jack Smith is trying to cut off all inappropriate arguments based on politics, based on uh, passion, based on immunity, based on selective prosecution. These are legal issues for the court to resolve. These are not the kind of things that jurors get to hear about. Glenn, I, I want to follow up with you there. 11,780. We've heard this over and over and over again, that number. With the call to Raffensperger, Donald Trump continues to push this notion of immunity. And he's using even the evidence in the call itself to Georgia State Secretary, uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger, where he asked him, I'm just, I just need to find 11,780 votes as evidence of, look, I, I, there, I did nothing wrong. Is this immunity argument, you just talked about appropriate arguments, is this immunity argument going anywhere? No, the immunity argument is going precisely nowhere. Judge Chutkin 
ruled that a president is not absolutely immune from being prosecuted for crimes he commits while in office. I anticipate the D.C. Federal Circuit Court of Appeals will rule exactly the same way. I think the most interesting question, Charles, is will the Supreme Court opt to review that issue, that that claim by Donald Trump when there really is no legal support for it? There's no statute, there's no precedent, and there's no constitutional provision that says a uh, a, a president can commit any and all crimes he wants with impunity. Frankly, if the Supreme Court buys into that, then the president could commit any number of crimes against the Supreme Court while in office to sort of marginalize their power. I don't see any of that happening. David, let's talk social media. Donald Trump has basically been a nightmare. and We already know this. Uh, there was a Daily Mail poll uh, that recently asked a thousand likely voters what word they would use to describe Donald Trump. And their word cloud was astonishing. You had things like power, revenge, dictator, dictatorship, success, America, corruption. Uh, What do you make of this in terms of the larger narrative as we are just now inside one month from the Iowa caucuses? Yeah, I I think our political uh, community, if you will, as a nation is kind of running on a parallel track with our cultural and civic community, and they're about to run into each other by November. And what I mean by that is, I don't know that we're ready for the national defining moment we're about to face, the cultural moment we're about to face. We have discussed thus far tonight Donald Trump's ethos, but he's also the front runner for the Republican Party. There doesn't appear to be a political penalty for that type of behavior. If anything, there's a reward within Republican politics. And then let's bring in this hard legal conversation we're having. Suppose he is convicted in the Jack Smith case ahead of the November election and either wins or loses and refuses to accept defeat. Or suppose I agree with Glenn, and I'm sure Barb does as well, the immunity claim could not possibly be upheld. But suppose this Supreme Court, the 6-3 majority, finds a way to uphold some type of crazy claim by the president throughout this process. There is a world in which this country just fractures and breaks and The terms that appear in that heat map that you just mentioned suggest the toxicity, not just within our politics, but within our culture. We are resilient. We can get through this, but only if we try very hard to do so. Well, it certainly appears that a lot of folks who were polled with respect to their opinions truly understand exactly who Donald Trump is. Our distinguished panel is staying with us, so stay tuned, because right up next, after the break, the Michigan Supreme Court rules that Trump may remain on the primary ballot in that state, despite his role in the events surrounding January 6th. I'm Charles Coleman Jr., and the readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Welcome back to The Readout. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. in for Joy Reid tonight. There was another major legal development today that could affect the 2024 Republican presidential primaries. Michigan's Supreme Court rejected a case bought by voters to block Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot. The Michigan justices did not rule on whether Trump engaged in insurrection. The case was rejected on procedural grounds arguing, quote, we are not persuaded that the questions presented should be reviewed by this court, end quote. Now, the ruling comes in Michigan just a week after Colorado's Supreme Court made the opposite decision. That court barred Trump from Colorado's primary ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for engaging in insurrection by inciting the January 6th attack. Now, since then, the FBI has begun assisting Denver police in investigating violent threats to the justices who made that ruling. Right now, Trump faces lawsuits to keep him off the ballot in at least a dozen states beyond Colorado and Michigan. Let's just say he's got his hands full. Now, Michigan's highest court noted that the voters who were suing there could renew their case for the general election if Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee. And for now, the Colorado ruling blocking him from the state's ballot is on hold until January 4th. Trump's campaign is expected to appeal the ruling to the United States Supreme Court. Back with me is my panel, attorney Glenn Kirshner, former congressman David Jolly, and my friend, super lawyer Barbara McQuaid. Barbara, I want to talk to you. Can you just lay out for our viewers, because even though I said it in the lead up, some people may be confused. What's the difference between why the Michigan case was decided in the way that it was and why the Colorado case was decided in the way that it was? Yeah, primarily, Charles, it's a function of state law. Every state has different rules about how they administer their own elections. And so what the court said here is in Michigan, it is not an eligibility question for courts to decide at the primary stage of an election. It is for parties to decide who they want to place on their ballot. And so procedurally, they said this question is just not right for the courts to adjudicate. And so that's why they rejected this claim. But I think one thing this really illustrates is why we might need the Supreme Court to weigh in here about how these cases ought to proceed so that we can get a definitive answer. But because we do have different state laws in different states, it may be difficult to find one uniform answer for all of it. Given what you've just said, Barb, in terms of the fact that there are these different state laws, at what point do we get to any sort of reconciliation before Election Day? Could we be looking at a situation potentially where because of these differences, Trump is on the ballot in some states and in other states he's not? I think that's right, Charles. So you could see some states blocking him from being even on the primary ballot. You could see other states saying that he can be on the primary, but blocking him from the general election. I could even imagine a scenario where they say this just means he can't be inaugurated as president. There's nothing about it that says he's ineligible to run. Now, I would hope that the courts would step in before that point, because that would result in utter chaos if we had someone elected who couldn't be seated as president. But the question is really up in the air, which is why I think it's so important that we do get the Supreme Court to weigh in on this question as soon as possible. 
So, David, uh, The Hill is reporting that Trump has now demanded the recusal of the main secretary of state in determining whether he should be on the ballot because of a 14th Amendment challenge there, calling the main secretary of state a biased Democrat. Now, it's important to note that in Maine, challengers can appeal and the secretary of state can weigh in before the appeal is decided. Are we in a space where, politically speaking, anyone now can sort of zero in on the secretary of state in any jurisdiction and charge that this is not a free and fair election, even before an election has taken place? Yeah, look, I think that's part of what Donald Trump introduced to our our country four or six years ago. If things aren't going your way, you know, you target the individual who's responsible in this case for the administration of elections. And as Barb was saying, in each state, you know, the power for some of these decisions is vested differently. In some states, a secretary of state may have discretion. Now, we've seen them be cautious in using that discretion. And ultimately, I think Barb, Barb is right. This will require, hopefully, the Supreme Court to give a clear declaration on this 14th Amendment question. But what you're seeing from Donald Trump, and I think we'll continue to see from Republicans, is this ramping up of intensity around this question. You know, Republicans see this through a very resentful lens that how dare you try to do this to Donald Trump. Democrats and critics of Donald Trump say he needs to be held accountable for an insurrection. What I keep hearkening back to, though, because I'm skeptical this strategy works to keep him off the ballot, what I keep hearkening back to is when Barack Obama said, don't boo vote, somewhere in there is an analogy to this. Don't count on the 14th Amendment to stop Donald Trump. Let's hope it does. But get out there and vote and work to get your neighbors to vote as well. I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad you made it. I think that strategically, we're not talking about what are our contingency plans? How do we intend to use the checks and balances that exist within the Constitution to our advantage in the event that the outcome of the presidential election does not turn out how we might want? Uh, and so I'm glad you made that point. Glenn, let's go from Maine to Michigan. So Donald Trump, you know, he, he reportedly has called Wayne County canvassers and basically told them that they needed to fight for the country. It, it, he's getting into so much different trouble. And it's important that people understand this is actually a different criminal matter than the other criminal matters that he has facing him. What do you think is the likelihood that he may be looking at an indictment here? Or do you imagine that this potentially could be used as evidence in his other election interference cases? Oh, it could certainly be used in other cases as part of his M.O., his method of operating to show a common plan or scheme. Um, you know, Donald Trump seems to believe he can bully himself into any office. He can bully himself out of any situation. But you know what, Charles, I think we need to remember it didn't work in 2020. And more importantly, what I don't think Donald Trump appreciates the more we listen to him spew nonsense into the public square day after day is most of this nonsense will never see the inside of a courtroom because criminal trials are governed by the rules of procedure and the rules of evidence. And Donald Trump and his lawyers are going to be so limited in what they can present to the jury, whereas Jack Smith's prosecutors will be able to present every word Donald Trump uttered that they believe has uh, evidentiary value that is incriminating based on the rules of evidence, a statement of a party opponent, that once the rules of evidence are applied to Donald Trump and his legal team, they're not going to know 
what hit them. And it's going to be a very powerful presentation in a court of law. Barbara, one last question for you. If you're the if you're the uh, prosecutor on this, if you're Jack Smith, how excited are you that Donald Trump continues to run his mouth about this immunity claim? Or at this point, you just not even moved. Oh, no, I think everything that Donald Trump says, whether he says it at at a rally or on an interview or on a truth social post, all of it is fair game. And I imagine he's got somebody on his team continuing to collect all of these statements because, as Glenn said, they can be used against him in court. And so Mm -hmm. things that suggest his knowledge of uh, the election outcome can be useful at the trial. So I think uh, he'll keep talking and Jack Smith will keep collecting. Thank you to my panel of experts, Glenn Kirshner, David Jolly, and my friend, Barbara McQuaid. You all were excellent. And after the break, Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin are signaling a new push to defend rigged voting maps that have delivered huge majorities for years. After that, state Supreme Court ruled that the maps are unconstitutional. There'll be more on the readout right after this. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome back to The Readout. I'm Charles Coleman, Jr., in for Joy Reid tonight. Now, last Friday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court delivered a major victory for fair representation when it ordered the Republican-controlled state legislature to draw new legislative boundaries ahead of the 2024 election. According to the court, the current Republican maps are unconstitutional because the district's boundaries are not contiguous. That is to say, they include areas that are not connected to each other, which the Wisconsin state constitution requires. Take, for example, the 47th Assembly District near Madison. Now, before I go any further, I just want to make sure that everyone understands what gerrymandering is and why it's problematic. Yes, we are going to take a trip back to seventh grade civics class. Every 10 years, we have a census. And that census allows us to redraw legislative boundaries that hopefully reflect the population and don't violate laws like the Voting Rights Act. Now, done the way the constitutional framers intended it, that would mean that districts would be drawn to be basically an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole. But that doesn't appeal to everyone. And that is where gerrymandering comes into play. It's when politicians manipulate the maps to reflect their own political ambitions. Wisconsin has been the poster child for gerrymandering since 2010, when mega wealthy conservatives helped Republicans take control of the state government, implementing the nation's most aggressively biased redistricting. 
And that diluted Democratic voices in the state. Now, Wisconsin is a 50-50 state where the two parties start out basically with roughly the same amount of voters statewide. But somehow, in the state assembly, Republicans consistently outperform in elections. Republicans in Wisconsin have vowed to appeal this decision all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is part of a broader Republican strategy to maintain control. Now, the key to gerrymandering is the Republican Party's quest to kill the Voting Rights Act, something that the Supreme Court has been all too happy to indulge. Republican disdain for the Voting Rights Act has been so brazen that we've seen novel and unrelenting assaults on it. I'm a civil rights attorney. Trust me, I know. In Arkansas, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a decision that a state does not have the right to redraw skewed maps. Republicans used a radical new idea that the Voting Rights Act cases can only be appealed by the Attorney General of the United States and not by private citizens or the people who are affected. Now, you may be wondering, where did this come from? Well, I have an answer, or at least a suggestion. The idea seems to stem from the Supreme Court and from Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas in a recent dissent. Republicans in Louisiana saw that Eighth Circuit decision as their opportunity to try to avoid redrawing their map. The gambit, however, did not work. They have until the end of January to draw and pass new congressional boundaries. Joining me to discuss this is Sophia Lynn Lakin, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Sophia, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we are all over the map in terms of literally, and pardon the terrible pun there, uh, what is happening with so many of these voting rights cases? Can you give me your reaction to what's happening specifically in Arkansas? Uh, thank you so much for having me on tonight. Yes, Arkansas is quite the wild, wild west. It's a decision that is completely beyond the pale, one that is contrary to, to decades of precedent and practice, including from the U.S. Supreme Court, including from the Eighth Circuit itself. And it would com completely eviscerate the the promise of the Voting Rights Act, the enforcement of which was completely driven by private plaintiffs, by individual voters who have been the subject of racial discrimination in voting. It would completely uh, bring those enforcement actions to a trickle. The attorney general can only bring so many cases at any given time. So, Sophia, it's, I'm, it's gonna, part, I'm sorry, go, go right ahead. No, I was to say, it's a, as you've said, it's a part of a larger uh, and very, very relentless assault on the Voting Rights Act that has gone on for quite some time. So let's go down to Texas. Uh, there is a headline from the Houston Chronicle that talks about a case where the judges say Galveston County violated U.S. Voting Rights Act, but another test is coming. Uh, there were conservatives on the Galveston Supreme Court, basically who, you know, that, that, that allowed the maps. And they, even though these maps were found by two other courts to be illegal, what do you make of where this fight is headed there and in other places across the country? Unfortunately, again, this is an, uh, the, there is a relentless attack and there's been, uh, unfortunately, some embrace of attacks that once were considered beyond the pale. These Hail Marys that um, are not really Hail Marys anymore. We're living in a time that um, arguments, 
uh, theories that you would consider once upon a time fantasies are seeing um, are being accepted as as possible reality. And that unfortunately means that the voters are suffering. The promise of the Voting Rights Act is to ensure that racial language minorities can vote free from racial discrimination. What's happening in Texas, um, the idea that coalitions of minority voters who are able to vote together to elect candidates of their of their choosing are not able to do that, that that somehow is beyond the scope of a federal law designed to protect minority voters. Um, that's yet another uh, yet attack on the Voting Rights Act and an attempt to get the U.S. Supreme Court to once again constrain and limit the ability of racial minorities in this country to get a fair shake, to have equal opportunities um, in the political process in our country. Sophia, there was a story uh, that recently appeared in The Washington Post that talked about these uh, election integrity units and the notion that uh, basically there's all this commotion about these units when they ultimately and disproportionately target black and brown and minority voters at a much higher level for a problem that hasn't been found to exist. It seems to me that, and someone described this, I thought it was beautiful, this is like a nail that is looking for a hammer. To hear the right talk about the notion of election integrity, you would believe that these instances are occurring at a much higher rate. Can you explain the fact that this is truly not, in fact, the issue that people are trying to make it out to be? Yes, unfortunately, the the myth of voter fraud has been around with us for some time. And the truth of the matter is, it's never been, there's never been a problem with voter fraud. And the fact that you see these integrity units, the so-called election integrity units designed to try to essentially find cases to support um, the idea that there is this problem with voter fraud um, is, is I think, uh, demonstrates the fact that this is not, this is fa yet again, fantasy um, and not reality. And ultimately, the, the 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 report is very interesting in that it shows that it um, that that these these fraud prosecution units are targeting uh, minorities. That is a huge concern because uh, at the at the at the worst case scenario, which I think is really true, you're even if they do not result in prosecutions, the fact that you are targeting minorities, subjecting them to investigation, um, that is extraordinarily terrifying and can result in despair amongst these communities, the desire not to participate and fear. Sophia Lynn Lakin, thank you so much for your insights in this very important conversation. Coming up after the break, Republican candidates prepare for a final push with just three weeks to go until the Iowa caucuses. And Donald Trump is already accusing his rivals of trying to rig the contest. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. and we'll be right back with more on The Readout. Welcome back to The Readout. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. in for Joy Reid tonight. Remember when, when the 2024 presidential election cycle felt like a next year issue? Well, that's about to end really, really fast. When the Iowa caucuses kick off the 2024 presidential election season in less than three weeks. The first contest in the Republican presidential nominating process is then followed by the January 23rd New Hampshire primary. 
Now, last night, Donald Trump appeared on Truth Social and accused his Republican primary rivals of trying to rig the Iowa caucuses, saying, quote, the other side does cheat. This is further expanding his lies over election interference. And this comes even as the big lie itself is set to go on trial. There's still a yawning gap between Trump and his many Republican challengers. He leads by more than 50 points in the real clear politics national average. But if you look at other polls, that gap closes, especially when you start zeroing in on Iowa. Trump still leads, but the numbers are slightly higher for Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. And then when you turn and you look at New Hampshire, Haley is polling second there and she trails Trump by 20 points. New Hampshire happens to actually be led by vocal Trump critic Governor Chris Sununu, who endorsed the former U.N. ambassador earlier this month. And now Sununu has appeared in a new ad for his presidential candidate of choice. He doesn't mention Trump by name, but he did have this to say about his disruptive legacy. Take a listen. She's a new generation of conservative leadership who can help leave behind the chaos and the drama of the past. Joining me now is Democratic pollster and strategist Cornell Belcher and Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and contributor for the Los Angeles Times. I have got an all-star panel with me. Thank you guys for being here. Happy holidays to you both. Uh, What do you make of the fact that we are in a space, Cornell, where Donald Trump is now accusing his rivals on the right of rigging the election, or is this sort of not a surprise at all and should be expected? Well, it it, it, sh- it should be expected because he, he he traffics in grievance, right? He is he traffics in grievance. He lives in grievance. Grievance is is his is his political capital. Uh, although, you know, I will say when you look at the polling data here, look, I, I don't usually care about the about the margins uh, of difference between candidates. Like you're down ten points, you're down fifteen points. I, I don't care as a pollster because I because I've worked for candidates who've overcome double digit margins. But when you look at the polling in in, in early stages, States, Trump is either at a majority support or close to a majority support. And so I don't care where you are. I, what I care about is, is how close you are to a majority. And if you look at the polling right now, he's awfully close to a majority in, in, the, in the two first states, which, which, which is a problem for, 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 for the field of candidates and particularly problematic for, for, for Haley if she, in fact, wants to continue this, so, this so-called surge. And she's actually sort of pulled back over the last couple of days. And, and as some reporting, and now she's playing it smart. Uh, you're not going to overcome an incumbent sitting in front of you with a lead by playing it smart. She's going to have to contrast and contrast with him hard. Cornell, just to follow up with you on that, is there any thought that by performing better in Iowa and or New Hampshire, that that might invigorate a new sort of set of life to either DeSantis or to Haley in their campaign? Or is that going to make it harder for them to raise money and continue to fight the fight against the presumptive nominee? No, that's a really good question, and 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 it's all about it's all about the money. And what you've seen, I think, is uh, Rick is uh, DeSantis pulling back, and some of the ca- other candidates pulling back. Look, I, I think if if Haley does well, I think the alternative money, the alternative, the Trump money begins to rally around her, which is really important. And look, you know, it, Iowa is important, but most of us forget that Iowa doesn't necessarily decide who wins it, especially. 
in, in the primaries. Look, you know, I remember Rick Santorum won Iowa, and most people have forgotten about that. But it, if she does well in the first two states, I think she becomes the 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 the, the alternative choice for Trump, and a lot of the money goes there. Kurt, my friend, uh, speaking of people who are pulling back, let's talk about everyone's favorite underdog. In like a lion and seemingly out like a lamb, we have Vivek Ramaswamy, who has now decided that he is not going to spend any more money on television ads. But yet today alone, he hosted eight town halls in Iowa. I do not know how you do eight town halls in a day, but apparently he does. What is this in terms of a sign? Have we seen the last of Ramaswamy's campaign? Is it on its last leg or does he know something that we don't? Well, I think it's been very clear from his posture, tone, tenor that this guy is going to stay in this race as long as he keeps getting attention. He loves the stage. This guy is about as egotistical and arrogant and narcissist as you're going to find. And he loves the attention. He loves the spectacle of it all. He's not going to spend any money anymore on that because it's just good money after bad. He's smart enough to know that, but it still means he wants to be in that field, in the position. And frankly, I think that part of his game is to stay in there so that he can take shots at the other candidates and do Donald Trump's dirty work for him. Uh, he's almost the Donald Trump surrogate on stage during these debates. A lot of the times he carries all the water for Trump uh, and does a lot of nasty attacking against candidates like Nikki Haley we've seen in more recent debates. And I think that you know his end game is to try to score enough points with Trump by staying in it, fighting in a way that Trump really endorses and likes to see, and hopefully find himself in the Trump cabinet if that were to come to pass. Kurt, staying with you, speaking of fighting and uh, Nikki Haley, we've seen the identity politics ramped up around the different attacks on Nikki Haley, Donald Trump referring to her in a very sexist way, calling her a bird brain, and then Vivek Ramaswamy, of all people, uh, noting that her gender card stick it's pathetic. In a space where we know that the notion of identity politics, meaning on the right, is somewhat of a radioactive term, is this a narrative that Nikki Haley has to be concerned about as she continues to try and climb in the polls? I mean, I think that when you're trying to be the standard bearer of a party that is built upon white nationalism, sexism, misogyny, it really shouldn't shock you when you become the target of that type of uh, rhetoric and, and attack lines, uh, because that, that that's your party. Those are the voters that you are actively trying to court to get to vote for you. Uh, these are the same voters who believe that it's okay to take a women's right to choose away, that it's okay for uh, old white men to make decisions about your health care for you. Um, it's the same type of things that we saw going after Hillary Clinton and the misogyny and sexism she was targeted from Republicans. Why Nikki Haley would think that she would be exempt from that is beyond me. She shouldn't. She should expect this. That's what's going to happen. And especially when you're running against people like Donald Trump, the ringleader of this type of, of, of attack uh, and that nastiness and ugliness and, and uh, you know, the, 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 way that it is over on the Republican Party and replaced what used to be a party that talked more about conservatism and policy and has then been completely run over by these personality type, uh, cult personality attacks. Like, yeah, that's par for the course. And that's the party you're trying to run, Nikki Haley. And good luck with that. Cornell, last question to you. Donald Trump is about to go on trial at some point during next year. The campaign is heating up on both sides. President Biden right now is not polling well. The minute that these caucuses start, it seems like, and they get going, Donald Trump's going to go on trial and presumably the entire news cycle is the air is going to be sucked out. Does that hurt Biden more 
in terms of his ability to break through and do something about his poll numbers? Or does it hurt Donald Trump in the, in, in the sense that he's a presumptive nominee and he's also facing criminal indictments out the wazoo? Well, I know I only have 30 seconds for this answer. Uh, one, I want to say that was a really good answer by my counterpart, by my friend on the other side. It was a great answer. And no, no, it does not hurt the President Biden for his opponent to be constantly on television, under trial, uh, and a threat of going to prison. No, that does not hurt him. Two of the biggest brains I knew, and I knew we could get it done on this segment. Thank you both, Cornell Belcher and Kurt Bardella. We'll be right back with more of the readout. Before we let you go tonight, be sure to check out MSNBC's top political moments of the year as chosen by Joy Reid and many of your other favorite MSNBC hosts. The video is now live on our YouTube channel. You can check it out at msnbc.com slash 2023. And that's it for tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.